few more in. Okay, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're returning to the series again, The Calvary Road, and this is going to be part two of The Power of the Blood of the Lamb. Uh, opening scriptures. We've got, uh, first of all, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, For God, that is God the Father, was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in Him, uh, His Son Jesus, and through Him to reconcile Him at all times, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood, through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Also Hebrews chapter 9 verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And finally, theme verse of our uh, series, The Calvary Road, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, And they overcame him, that is, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Father, as we examine, Lord, this whole topic of submission, Lord, which is really what the, the series, The Calvary Road, is all about. Lord, I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and we would become more submissive to you. Lord, the old self seeks to always uh, rear its ugly head and it exalts itself against you. But Lord, as you were the Lamb of God, Lord, help us to be lambs when it comes to bowing ourselves to your will. So, Lord, teach us from your word as I bring forth this message, Lord. And I thank you for this, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing that series that we've been doing for quite some time now. The series entitled, The Calvary Road. And I've based it upon the book, The Calvary Road, by Roy Hessian. And as I mentioned, this theme verse is Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. Chapter 1 was entitled Brokenness and talks about how we need to be broken before God. That is, our self-will needs to be broken. And that involves crucified living. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the, uh, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And also Jesus told us that we are to live that crucified living too. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose, his, will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Chapter 2, cups running over. That terminology came from Psalm 
23, I believe it's verse 5, where he says, My cup runneth over. We saw that we're, uh, the cup there refers to the human heart. And it's just it's to be filled to brimming over with what? With the Holy Spirit of God. Not just filled up to the brim, filled up to brimming over. So that the Holy Spirit of God would flow out from us and to a lost and dying world. Amen? Chapter 3 was the way of fellowship. We saw that at the fall of man, fellowship, that is communion, there's our word communion, with God, was not only broken with God, but our fellowship with other humans was broken as well. And God's cure for that is for us to walk in the light. Walk in the light means allowing the searchlight of God's Holy Spirit to penetrate our innermost being, the inner recesses of our heart, and expose the sin that's deep down inside. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, what's it say? We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from every sin. Chapter 4 was the highway of holiness. His terminology came there from Isaiah chapter 35 verses 8 and 9. And he mentions that no unclean can walk on it. Unclean means the sinner, the one that has not repented, the one that has not come to the Lord Jesus Christ. People in the world cannot live a life of holiness. Because God is holy. If they don't know God, how can they be holy? Amen? We also saw that we don't need to fear demonic spirits. You know, where it talks about there's no lion or ravenous beast. Ravenous beast refers to the false prophets that are there in the world. Jesus said to beware of these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So no demonic spirits or false prophets will be walking on that highway to holiness. Chapter 5 was the dove and the lamb. The dove speaks of the Holy Spirit who is always sensitive to disharmony. That's why we need to have uh, you know uh, we need to not have disharmony in in this church or in your home because if you have disharmony then the Holy Spirit who is so sensitive to that will flee from you. And also the Jesus as the Lamb of God uh, who accepted his faith by his death on the cross for our sins. Chapter 6 was revival in the home. We need to practice openness in our home life with those that live under our household. And we also need to display agape love. Sometimes we're not very lovable. But we need that agape love, which is the, the unconditional love that we should have for each other. It involves a forgiving attitude. If somebody in our household we feel like has wronged us, we need to forgive them. Chapter 7, the moat and the beam, that terminology came from Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Matthew 7, verse 3, 
It tells us that we are not to be judges. Judge not that you not, uh, be not judged. You know, and he goes on to say, whatever uh, measure that you judge others, you yourself will be judged. But we are to be fruit, in what we call fruit inspectors. That is, we can examine uh, other people and we can tell if their fruit is good or bad. And we're particularly supposed to do that when dealing with false prophets. Chapter 8 is, are you willing to be a servant? Just like Jesus, we should be willing to be a servant. The word in the New Testament is the Greek word doulos, which means a servant by choice. The Apostle Paul called himself a doulos. He didn't have to be a servant, but he willingly accepted that. And he uh, walked with the Lord Jesus Christ as his servant because he chose to do that. So, Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom is what? The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you learn to be a servant and the servant of all. Not only serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but serving your fellow man. And finally, chapter 9, which we started a few weeks ago, the power of the blood of the Lamb. And I spent that last message with seeing how this blood of the Lamb won our redemption at the cross and opened the way of fellowship of us with God. And I largely quoted from the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 9 and chapter uh, 10, which describe the uh, blood you know, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And that's why Jesus had to die. And Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. That's why we don't have to offer sacrifices now in the New Testament church. Because Jesus paid it all when he perished there on the cross, when he shed his blood there on the cross for our sins. And that has remitted our sins. Hallelujah. Okay, I'm going to continue with chapter 19. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 9, which is entitled The Power of the Blood of the Lamb. And this chapter may be the most important chapter in all of the series. Uh, Hessian begins his chapter with these thoughts. He says, I'm quoting here, The message and challenge of revival. Revival. You know, we had an election just a, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And you know what? The I was a, a little bit disappointed in the way that election turned out. You know, because we didn't experience the... Uh, uh, wave that we were hoping to have. And I won't go into detail about that, except to say this, brothers and sisters. You know, we can win every election that's around, and that's not going to make that much of a difference. You know why? The only thing that is going to save this country is not elections, it's going to be revival. There's got to be a revival in this nation. 
This nation needs another Jesus movement. And we've had them. We've had a lot of Jesus movements throughout the history of this nation. The last one came back in the 1960s and 70s. You know, that was my generation. I graduated from high school in 1969. And we were teetering on the edge at that very moment. The drugs, the occult, and the free sex hit this nation like a wave. And the only thing that stemmed the tide was the fact that we had a Jesus movement. And it was spearheaded by men like David Wilkerson and Chuck Smith of uh, Calvary Chapel of San Diego. And many other people that were involved in it too. That was the last revival that we've had. We desperately need one. Because that revival was back over 50 years ago. We need another one. Can you say amen to that? That is what's going to save this nation. Okay, so... What spawned Hessian's book, The Calvary Road, was about this matter of revival. And Hessian says, uh, the message and challenge of revival, which is coming to many of us these days, is in searching its utter simplicity. What's that utter simplicity? It is simply that there is only one thing in the world that can hinder the Christians walking in victorious fellowship with God and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is sin in our lives of one form or another. There's one thing that can cleanse him or her from that sin and that with all means of liberty and victory and that is the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus. The power of the blood of the Lamb. And I'm going to talk about the significance of that word Lamb in just a minute. We should all understand this power and we shall experience it in our lives. Now, Hessian goes on and he mentions several achievements and blessings that Scripture tells us are given to us by the blood of the Lamb. These Scriptures, <clears throat> I'm going to be giving to you. First of all, the first blessing is by the power of His blood. Peace is established between God and man. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 and 20. For God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile him to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the, his blood shed on the cross. So, peace is established between God and man. Second of all, forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Colossians 1.14 In Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And also, uh, John 6 verse 54, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now we saw that that uh, particular verse is not to be taken in a crass, little, literal way. 
You know, the Roman Catholic Church likes to t- uh, take that, rip that scripture out of context and say, well, if you don't partake of communion, then, you know, our Eucharist, then you don't have eternal life. And they use that to control people. But we saw that we don't take it in a literal way. Jesus even said that a few verses down in John chapter 6, verse 63. He said, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits for nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, you don't take John 6, 54, where he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in a literal way, but in a spiritual way. It means that you have fellowship with him, that you are submitted to him. He gave that scripture in an effort, or he gave that saying in an effort to say that we need to be completely submitted to him. We need to be his followers. He is the leader. We are the followers. We are to be submitted to him. Also, we see that Satan is overcome. We saw that in Revelation chapter. Uh, 12 verse 11, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. We saw that sin, we, uh, there's also the benefit of sin is continually cleansed for us all. Again, First John 1, 7, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us. It continues to cleanse us from every sin. Number five, we saw that we may uh, we we see that we may be set free from an evil conscience to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter uh, nine verses thirteen and fourteen: For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself to God without spot? Uh, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And finally, number six, even the most unworthy of us have the liberty to enter the Holy of Holies and dwell in God's presence. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, To enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now what gives the blood of Jesus its power? The answer is found to this question is found back there in Revelation 12 verse 11. The blood, uh, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And also Revelation chapter 7 verse 14. John is up in heaven, or he's up in heaven in the vision in the book of Revelation. And he writes, so the angel said to me, you know, it says, these are the ones, he saw these people that were standing before the throne. And he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, Hessian brought that point out that I'd never thought of before. It's 
the blood of what? It's the blood of the Lamb. It's not the blood of the warrior. Jesus didn't shed his blood in warring against armies here on earth, did he? No, he willingly went there to the cross. It's the blood of the Lamb, not the blood of the warrior. That which gives the blood of Jesus its power in our lives is to have a lamb-like, the, the same lamb-like disposition of the one who shed it for us on the cross, and of which is its supreme expression. The title, the lamb, occurs frequently in, uh, given to the Lord Jesus in script, uh, Scripture, and it's descriptive of all his work. Now, this, this idea, the concept of the Lamb, that harkens way back, not just in what Jesus did on the cross when he shed his blood. It harkens way back into the Old Testament times. You know, uh, it starts all the way back at the time of Abel. Genesis chapter 4, fourth chapter in all the Bible, talks about how Abel... In order to establish a right relationship with the Lord, what did he do? He sacrificed the firstlings of his flock. In other words, his sheep. He sacrificed those, and by the shedding of their blood, his sins were remitted, or at least covered up. Now you move up all throughout the Old Testament up until the time of Moses, the line giver. Law, the lawgiver, and where a lamb was offered for each household, which allowed what for the death angel to pass over them, and that's why they call it what they call it the Passover lamb. You know, there's a song about that that goes, "When I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood." I will pass over, pass over you. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm not much of a singer. But it's talking about, you know, uh, really Jesus. Because you see, the Passover lamb was a type of Jesus. Way back there, 1400 years before Jesus became the Lamb of God. It was a type of Jesus, the Passover Lamb. So therefore, Jesus is what they called the anti-type, or the fulfillment of the type. And the prophet Isaiah saw this fulfilling, fulfillment coming down. You know, he wrote 700 years later after the Passover Lamb, and still 700 years before Jesus made it a reality, he wrote this in uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This is talking about the suffering servant, which referred to Jesus' uh, ministry, earthly ministry. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now John the Baptist also saw the fulfillment of this type in the Lord Jesus. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when 
John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he exclaimed in John chapter 1 verse 29, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' whole ministry here on earth was that of a lamb. And Jesus implored fallen mankind to follow him. Now listen to, the, to his personality here. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All you have to do, his yoke and his burden is all you have to do is submit to him. That's pretty easy, easy isn't it? Well, I, maybe not so easy. But that's what's required of you as his sheep, the sheep of his pasture. You know, Jesus never forced anyone to, to follow him. He said, come to me. Just come, come, come to me. You know, he didn't force you. He said, you know, I'm going to force you. You know, his attitude was always whosoever will, whoever wants to me, may come. Now that's unlike some religions who force conversion. They force you to convert there to their religion. The Muslims are notorious for doing that. And even Christianity in the Roman Catholic Church they had forced conversions back during the days of the Inquisition. Then when the Protestant Reformation started, they were burning people at the stake that would not give up their beliefs. In communist nations, they force you to convert, and they, have their, they say they're godless religion, but they, they are religion in themselves. The supreme leader there in North Korea makes you hang a picture of him up in your room, your, you know, a room of your house. And President Xi of China is doing that too. He goes, you know, his police go to a Christian household, they'll take down the crosses and pictures of Jesus and put in the, the picture of President Xi. They have their own religion. A few weeks ago before the election, I tried to uh, express this to you that there's a new religion out there called the woke religion. It's a polytheistic religion, as I mentioned. And they're forcing you to bow down to their various gods, the god of abortion, the god of this gender ideology. And we saw that those were just re reincarnations really of the pagan gods that uh, the nation of Israel had to deal with. And they're trying to fort, they have no qualms about trying to evangelize you and telling you that you must believe like they do. So, 
These people try to force you to convert to their religion. But Jesus never forced anybody to follow him. Did he? He never did that. There will come a time when that will be true. When he returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. But for right now, we're to submit to the Lord willingly. That's what we're called to do willingly. So Jesus' way was that of submission to his Father. He practiced total surrender to him throughout his early, uh, earthly life. He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who sent him? God the Father. He came to do the will of God the Father. And now we're to do the will of God the Father too. And we do that through Jesus, him, his son. Okay, Jesus surrendered to his father's will. Not just when he willingly chose to go to the cross to achieve our eternal redemption, but he practiced it in his ministry toward us. He gave us an example for us to follow. As he was in submission to his father, we are to be in submission to him. Again, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, anything but the attitude of a lamb that was present in Jesus would have resisted and resented the treatment that he received at the hands of men. Look what they did to him. They beat him. They jammed a crown of thorns on his brow. They tore open his back with the cat of nine tails. They pulled out his beard, says in Isaiah. And then, of course, they took him to the cross and nailed him there. But Jesus said nothing. It said, be, like a, a, a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death on a cross so you know what another thing Hashin pointed out is he is not merely the lamb of God because he died on the cross rather he died on the cross because he was first the lamb. Now you should have gotten excited about that. You know, I should have heard amens all over the congregation. I'll say it again. He is not merely the lamb of God because he died on the cross, but rather he died on the cross because he was first the lamb. Amen. amen. Hallelujah. You know, and this is true of life in general, uh, brothers and sisters. What you do in life does not define you. It's what you are. Because what you are gives birth to whatever you do. And so if we're Christians, we ought to act as Christians, right? Amen? We ought to follow Jesus' example. But our problem is we have this attitude of resist 
and insist. That is, we resist against uh, accepting God's will in our lives, and we insist on getting our own way. We turn Jesus' submission on its head. Instead of saying, not my will, but yours be done, we say, not your will, but mine be done. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It ought not to be that way. We ought to have the same attitude of submission that Jesus had. And nowhere is this more noticeable in our dealings with others. We insist on getting our own way. And that was kind of the lead up to Paul's question about what, uh, what was probably an early uh, Christian hymn and immortalized in the uh, kenosis passage. I've talked about the kenosis passage before in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 11. It's a good hymn to memorize it. And Paul prefaces, it, uh, by the way, what it talks about is that Jesus, you know, did not seek his own will, but he submitted to the Father even before he left heaven. It says that he came here to earth, he left his heavenly home, came here to earth, and took upon himself a human body and became obedient throughout his earthly life, obedient even to death, the death on the cross. And then God promises that when we do this too, just as Jesus, God will highly exalt us. God gave Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and things under earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will exalt us in the same way. Okay, so he prefaces that kenosis passage, though, with verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is the mind of submission, the attitude of submission. And as Christians, we follow this way. And that's, you know, brothers and sisters, this is why we don't practice, we're not to practice self-righteousness and a salvation by works. You don't have any righteousness of your own. I've talked about this many times. What did I say? Isaiah 64 verse 6. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before him. It's only the robe of righteousness that God gives us. Clean and spotless. That's why Paul writes, I don't have my own righteousness, but I have the righteousness of God, which is by faith, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which I appropriate by faith. <clears throat> but if we are insistent on our own self-righteousness, you know, we can practice what the world would call good works. Paul talks about all that uh, uh, before, you know. Uh, you know, giving, uh, you know, all these different good works that he could do. But it really doesn't matter to God what you, your works are as much as what's in your heart. And if what's in your heart is that attitude of submission, then you're going to produce the works. Okay? So we are to have the same attitude of submission 
as the Lord Jesus himself did. And that's, that way, when we practice good works in our lives, it is because he is doing them through us and not a result of self-effort on our part. If you're going to try to justify yourself through self-effort, it's you that's doing the works and not God. After observing that we are saved by grace through faith and not as a result in good works in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, Paul wrote in those verses, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If anybody's boasting about their, self, uh, uh, their good works, it's a surefire indication that they, they themselves were doing it and not Christ through them. Paul goes on after that uh, uh, scripture and he says, verse 10, For we are his worksmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And after the great observations that uh, Paul made in that kenosis passage, which I m mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, he writes this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, he says, work out your own salvation. Doesn't that indicate that we're to work for our salvation? No, it doesn't. Because what the, the, in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of good, his good pleasure. Those are the good works that God recognizes. When you're submitted to him and you produce the good works, he through you, that's what really matters to him. You know, it says that faith without works is dead. Well, the, the, that's true because unless you have the faith of God, then you can't work the works of God. But if he's in, living in your heart, he is doing the works, right? He is work, doing the works through you. Okay. These are the final thoughts here. Okay, as Christians, we should already have that uh, mindset of submission as Jesus did. Paul said that we're, you know, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And Paul says we already have it. Because if we're Christians, we're true Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Many people have the Lord in their heart, but they're just just—they're not practicing it because they're not practicing that attitude of submission. Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? If you're a Christian, you should already have the mind of Christ. Amen? 
And the mind of Christ was submission to his Father. And if we've got the mind of Christ, that means that we are to be submissive to him. You know, he calls us to be lambs. He was the Lamb of God, right? And we're called to be lambs too in our dealings with him, before him. It's not necessarily saying that we're to be lambs before people, although sometimes it, uh, that's what it entails. But sometimes you have to be a lion too. Jesus is also the lion. Jesus was a lion when he dealt with the Pharisees, right? He said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he listed the seven woes that you read about in Matthew chapter uh, 23. He was a lion when he dealt with them. Because why? Because he saw them practicing hypocrisy, which was leading the people astray. When you got God on your sight, you can stand up there. That's why I could stand up and call out the woke culture a few weeks ago. Same thing, you know, God led me. First ministry I ever got involved with was the cult ministry. I had to call these people out because they were leading other people astray. So there's times when you have to stand up and be the, not the Lamb of God, but the Lion of God. But in your dealings with God Himself and doing His will, you're always the Lamb. You're always submit, submitted to Him. The final scripture I will tell you is James chapter 4, verse 7. I'm sorry, the reference is not there, but it, it's James chapter 4, verse 7. James writes, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So before you can have victory in your life, you first have to submit. You first have to be a lamb before God. I've been teaching a lot about spiritual warfare, and I listed a lot of different uh, weapons of God, and I've talked about them before. You know, there's the Word of God. The Word of God is a weapon, right? When Jesus was attempted, well, how did he get rid of the devil? He quoted scripture, right? There's also prayer in the Spirit. We've talked a lot about that. We've talked about fasting as being a weapon too. And I spend a number of weeks on the name of Jesus. And you come to me and Cliff, I've been using those weapons, but I'm still defeated. What's wrong? What's wrong is you haven't submitted to God. Submit to God. Then you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. But first, that you don't get the cart before the horse. The first thing is submission to God. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what this whole series is about. What's the title of this series? The Calvary Road. The Calvary Road is the road to submission. And you don't just learn it overnight. You have to learn to practice it. So that's the message of the Calvary Road. God is calling us to a life 
of submission. Now I'm going to close with this uh, song here. You know, uh, we've played this uh, song before. You know, for in, in sometimes our closing song, I think maybe two, or, uh, maybe a couple of times before, and I was kind of hesitant uh, uh, about doing it, but uh, this song kind of encapsulates everything uh, that I've been trying to say today, and uh, uh, it's a song by entitled uh, "Oceans Will Part," and. Uh, you know, it's sung by the group Hillsong. And, you know, I've become really attached to this singing group Hillsong. And it's because there's so much depth of teaching within the song. Within, not, not just this song, but within many other songs. And, you know, Donnie Swaggart says that a good song is a sermon set to music. And praise and worship, in fact, I'm going to start a series next year, beginning of next year, about the importance of praise and worship in your life. You know, I've heard it said that more people got saved through the revivals throughout history, through the singing, than they did the preaching. Because the singing stirs us up emotionally. It really touches our hearts, and we need our hearts touched. Amen? We're never going to have revival unless people's hearts are touched. Now, some of the words in this song, you know, I didn't know, you know how to really take them until I really sat down and thought about them. You know, the, one of the things, the, the lines in the song is, I, As I open up my eyes to the work of your hands... You know, I, first I thought, well, work of his hands, you know, that's the beautiful scenery like what we have around here. You know, Bryce Canyon, the Grand Canyon, Zion Park, and many other places around here. Those of you that uh, are from the reservation, you've seen a lot of really beautiful country out over there that I'd like to see someday. But it's not saying the works of your hands... It says the work of your hands. It's singular, not plural. Amen? I never really noticed that until last night as I was uh, uh, listening to the song before the final preparation. What is the work of his hand? The work of his hand is what he is doing in you. Amen? Paul said we are his workmanship. We just saw that. Also, there's Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But he can't do that work in you unless you are first submitted. God is working in you if you are submitted to him. So, my conclusion was, this song is talking about the work that God is doing in your life. And then he, they sing such things as, ocean will part. What do you think when you think of oceans will part? 
You think of the parting of the Red Sea, right? Now, I believe that the parting of the Red Sea happened. But that happened 3,400 years ago. What's it mean to you? It means when you're facing an impossible situation in life now, God will part that ocean when your back's up against the wall. Or like uh, uh, Larry Lee says, when you face a trial, an impossible situation, it's when there's no back door. The devil has painted you into a corner. And that's when God will part the oceans for you. Nations come. What does that mean? You know, nations come, and then the next line, at the whisper of your voice, does that mean that God's going to whisper, and all of a sudden, all the people there in China are going to come to him? No, it's talking about how his word would go forth and it would reach people of every kindred, tribe, and nation. You know, Dolly's an example of that. God touched her heart a number of years ago through some Finnish missionaries and she came to Christ. People of every kindred, tribe, and nation. At the whisper of your call, Jesus calls gently, come unto me, come unto me. Amen? You have to remember this. The world shouts. God whispers. And that's why you have to condition yourself to where you can hear the voice of of, uh, the Lord. Okay? You have to learn to get quiet before Him and let Him speak to your heart in that still small voice. Hope will rise, glory shown. That's referring to your life. He'll give you that hope. He'll show His glory when you're submitted to Him. His glory will be shown when you submit to Him. And that's the last line there. In my life, your will be done. Okay, so now Susie's going to cue that up and watch for these words and think about what it means to you in your life. Oh, oh, oh. 
Okay, I've uh, preached this message. Is there anyone out there that has not made a commitment to the Lord Jesus? You know, everybody bow your heads and uh, close your eyes right now. Is there anyone out there that has not uh, made that commit uh, commitment to Jesus Christ of turning their life over to Him? Just raise up 